You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, a cardiologist at the University of Chicago Medical Center, your host today on Clinician Roundtable. And with me today is Dr. Alan Anderson. Dr. Alan Anderson is an associate professor of medicine in cardiology at the University of Chicago Medical Center and he is the Medical Director of Heart Failure and Transplantation at the University of Chicago. Uh, welcome to the show today, Dr. Anderson. Hi. Acute decompensated heart failure, better therapy, or increased mortality. Today we're going to talk about patients who come into the hospital in acute decompensated heart failure. And Dr. Anderson, I'd like to start first by just asking you to describe to us what is this patient type? What type of patient comes in that we would put the label of acute decompensated heart failure? Well, Dr. Sorrentino, this is typically the type of patient who might present to the emergency department with breathlessness, perhaps at rest or with minor exertion. It often may be something that is developed gradually over the course of a few days. Uh, it may develop so gradually that the patient doesn't even realize what the symptoms are related to, particularly if it's the initial episode of acute decompensated heart failure. Alternatively, it might develop rather suddenly, characterized by just a sudden development of symptoms uh, that prompts them to seek medical attention. How do you decide when a patient is so sick uh, that they need to come to an ICU or they need uh, very advanced therapy? I think even one of the first questions is who needs to be admitted to the hospital with it. Our colleagues in the emergency department see a lot of these patients and treat them in the emergency department and actually release them from there. And I think one of the first keys is this a new diagnosis or is this a recurrent problem with a known diagnosis of acute decompensated heart failure? I think if it's a new diagnosis, these patients ought to be admitted to the hospital because, as you know, there are so many things that could be the etiology of their heart failure that I think it really needs to be sorted out, and you don't want to miss someone with an acute coronary syndrome or with a new diagnosis of a dilated cardiomyopathy or something like that. I think for the patients who have a known diagnosis of heart failure, sometimes we call them the frequent flyers, I think it depends on the level of their decompensation, uh, how many times they've already presented in other markers such as what their renal function is, what their blood pressure is, and what perhaps the underlying cause of their acute decompensation is. Then once you admit them to the hospital, I think still a lot of these patients, the most the majority of these patients can be managed on a regular telemetry floor bed. I think the decision to admit to the intensive care unit ought to involve things such as are there arrhythmias present? Is there something like an acute coronary syndrome present? Uh, how severe is their uh, degree of end-organ hypoperfusion? If these are patients who are in shock or seemingly in impending shock, then certainly they should go to the intensive care unit. Well, let's talk about the patient who uh, has known heart failure, let's say a dilated cardiomyopathy, who comes in with a acute decompensation, doesn't appear to be due to some other underlying uh, condition. In the initial assessment, uh, how do you decide which patient just needs some uh, IV diuretics or, or which one should then go to more higher order of therapy? The first step is to sort of assess what their state of uh, end organ perfusion is and also to get a sense for uh, what their volume status is. Lynn Warner-Stevens and, and others have proposed this four-quadrant model that identifies patients based on their volume status and a non-invasive assessment of their cardiac output, which we really look at as uh, are they wet or dry and are they warm or cold. Generally speaking, patients who are well perfused and who are significantly volume overloaded as evidenced by edema, pulmonary congestion, elevated jugular venous pressure, those patients certainly need 
to be treated with intravenous diuretics, and, and I certainly always recommend intravenous diuretics in these patients. As a first-line therapy, I still think that remains certainly something to consider how much diuretic to give, when to move on to more aggressive diuretic regimens is really something that we don't know a lot about. There's not a lot of data that tells us. The first step is certainly diuretics and assessing their volume overload state. Uh, if the patients are hypoperfused or if they're manifesting other evidence of end organ dysfunction, then I really think you need to think about other types of therapies. And traditionally, people have thought about uh, using things like uh, inotropic agents in these patients, which certainly carry their own risks. I personally prefer to use vasodilators in patients who don't respond just immediately to uh, intravenous diuretics. Uh, I think the combination of vasodilators and intravenous diuretics can really rapidly improve symptoms. Let's talk a little bit about that uh, second group of patients, which I think are the harder ones to identify and, and to treat. The, the patient who comes in very congested, uh, intravenous diuretics seems a very logical first step, but the patient who is hypoperfused, how do we really determine that? What is What can you use? clinically to say this patient is not perfusing his organs well enough? Obviously, this is, can be a very difficult area, and there's a little bit of research on this. A variety of things have been proposed. I think certainly our bedside examination is the thing that all of us first apply because it's the thing most readily available to us. And we're going to look for things like evidence of cool extremities. We're going to look for urine output. We're going to look at renal insufficiency or evidence for prerenal azotemia on the chemistry panel. And those things will begin to give us a sense as to whether we think the patient is relatively hypoperfused. I think blood pressure is important, although blood pressure certainly doesn't tell the whole story. I, I see plenty of patients who are quite hypertensive and actually need to be better perfused by giving something like a vasodilator or something to actually decrease systemic vascular resistance and increase the cardiac output. So I think that's the first step. There are other potential possibilities for things to consider. Certainly the ultimate gold or silver standard that the investigators have suggested and investigated is, is Swan-Gans catheterization, which we certainly don't employ with any regularity uh, in these patients at the University of Chicago. And I think the results of the ESCAPE trial tell us that uh, Swan-Gans catheterization, while it doesn't adversely affect mortality, doesn't necessarily shorten hospitalization. I think in between our bedside physical exam and hemodynamics, we have the options for things like looking at bioimpedance as a non-invasive assessment, which is something that's been employed in some centers as potentially a way to assess that. Uh, we know that uh, inotropic therapy, such as, for example, dibutamine, can give some immediate uh, relief to a patient's symptoms, but there is some concern that it may actually worsen mortality. I think there are two inotropic agents that we think about using, and dibutamine is one, milrinone as the other. Both of these agents are, have positive inotropic effects. Milrinone has a little bit more systemic vasodilatation. And these agents are, are frequent go-to agents for these types of patients. While they can result in improvement in symptoms and certainly in patients in cardiogenic shock, they can be really life-saving. I think the routine use of these agents is pretty hazardous. They are prorhythmic. We do have a, a lot of data for inotropic agents in the management of chronic heart failure, and, and almost universally, those agents have been shown to adversely affect mortality. We don't have 
a lot of data, and we certainly don't have any published mortality data on the use of these inotropic agents in acute decompensated heart failure. And so precise measurement of what their potential impact on mortality is is really not known. We do have some data on milrinone that tells us when it's employed in patients with acute decompensated heart failure that it doesn't really shorten hospitalizations, but it is associated with an increased risk of adverse events like premature ventricular contractions and ventricular tachycardia, although there wasn't a statistically significant difference in mortality. So I I really caution the trainees here and and my colleagues as well to be careful about employing inotropic agents routinely in these patients because I do think there's a downside to it. And that downside may extend even beyond hospital discharge. Which patients then would you reserve this therapy for? How do you decide that the short-term benefit may outweigh the long-term risk? This is an area that, in terms of evidence-based medicine, is incompletely explored. And it's really quite remarkable. There's been a lot of criticism in recent years about various therapies and various approaches to acute decompensated heart failure. And what I find is that we should all be aware that there's just really a paucity of data of any of the therapies that we routinely employ, even down to diuretics. We really can't tell you what the long-term positive or adverse events on mortality of diuretics are in heart failure. In terms of using the inotropic agents, I think there is a group of patients that we feel compelled to use them in because we really don't have any other therapies, and that's the group of patients who are uh, really quite hypoperfused. They're in a low cardiac output state. They are either in cardiogenic shock or they are in impending cardiogenic shock. We also know that these inotropic agents can be safely employed to bridge patients to cardiac transplantation. So there are observational studies that tell us that in patients who are listed and waiting for transplantation, if they've got a defibrillator in place, they can be safely managed with continuous infusion inotropic agents, even in the outpatient setting. So not all of the data on inotropes are bad. And I think when we see that type of patient, then I'm very quick to employ an inotropic agent. I'm reluctant to imply it in first-line therapy, except in those very low-output type patients. Uh, How do you decide what dose of IV diuretics to use, and and when do you start cutting back? We are certainly concerned about the potential rise in creatinine that we see in patients who are treated for acute decompensated heart failure. The effects of diuretics may be even more adverse than just their impact on creatinine. There is evidence that diuretics actually upregulate the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone axis in patients with acute decompensated heart failure uh, and in chronic heart failure. And so we may, with diuretics, actually upregulate some of the very pathways that we're trying to attenuate with our chronic heart failure therapy. So the effects of diuretics may go beyond the creatinine increase. But in terms of how to dose diuretics, it's always the age-old question, and we all do it the way that we were taught to do it and the way our experience has evolved. We know that chronic heart failure patients are diuretic-resistant. Often the first-time patients respond very well to diuretics, but over time they respond less well to diuretics for a whole host of reasons. We want to use intravenous diuretics to avoid the problems with oral absorption. I generally start with at least the oral dose given intravenously so that I know that I'm giving an an increased dose since we know oral diuretics are generally poorly absorbed, uh, at least when it comes to furosemide, which is the most commonly used loop diuretic. So I start with that approach. And, you know, historically, we have used an approach that involves intermittent 
bolus diuretic, so we'll give a dose of furosemide and then gauge the response. And then if we see an adequate response, we'll continue that dose. If we don't see an adequate response, then we'll increase that dose. More and more, if I'm going to use a diuretic, I'm going to an approach where I use actually, rather than intermittent bolus diuretics, I use a continuous infusion diuretic, which gives us the opportunity to inhibit renal sodium absorption over a long period of time rather than just the few hours that bolus loop diuretics. So while we don't have any data that tells, or have very limited data to tell us which approach is best, I think many of us in the heart failure community are beginning to contemplate the use of continuous infusion diuretics to begin with. But even that may still not be adequate in some of our very diuretic-resistant patients. And even that may cause adverse renal effects in these patients. So I think that's not clearly the definitive answer. Well, I want to thank Dr. Alan Anderson, who has been our guest today, and we have been discussing acute decompensated heart failure. I'm Dr. Matthew Sorrentino, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com, and thank you for listening.